When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He's involved in a number of businesses. He's a great role model. Telling it like it is. Giving you both sides of the story. This is Cats at Night. Great American, a great New Yorker. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. This is John Katsimatidis, Cats at Night. This is the 5 o'clock show. This is a triplex, uh, uh, right? Cast. Okay. Same thing. 970 AM, The Answer, WABC 770, and... WLIR in Long Island, and uh, we're up and down the whole East Coast and parts of Canada and uh, parts of Northern Europe. And uh, in the uh, studio with us is we have Judge Richard Weinberg and Governor David Patterson, if we can find them. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, we have Lydia Serrano as my sidekick. And uh, Lydia, we have a great uh, show today. Absolutely fantastic what show. What are we going to be talking about? We'll be speaking shortly with Pulitzer Prize winning writer Michael Goodwin of the New York Post talking about Ukraine. And then he's got a great article that, that just came out. It says, when it comes to Russia, Joe Biden, you are no Ronald Reagan. Yep. And then we're also speaking to Andre Dubaransky. Ooh, I think I butchered your last name, but it's okay. I'll get it right. For he's the head of the Ukrainian Congress of America. We'll also talk to the Polish Consul General. We'll be talking about the refugees that are going to Poland. There's about a million refugees that have now left Ukraine. We're also going to talk to Ty McCoy. He's a former Assistant Secretary of the Air Force and City Councilwoman Ina Vernikow. And, of course, she's also from Ukraine. So a lot of Ukraine. And Catherine Wilde. Oh, Kathy Wilde. If uh, New York is opening up. Right. And we'll also be talking about the subway crime and what we're going to do about it. Because we're not going to take it anymore. Now on the line with us right now is Michael Goodwin. Michael Goodwin, you have an excellent article here talking about when it comes to Russia, Joe Biden, you are no Ronald Reagan. Oh, thank you, Lydia. Uh, yes, uh, I, I think that uh, if we're all paying attention to what's going on in Ukraine, and I think pretty much everybody is, one of the things you'll see is a big difference between the Ronald Reagan performance with the Soviet Union in the 1980s and Joe Biden's performance with Russia now. It's essentially that uh, in Vladimir Putin, you have a Soviet-style leader. And don't forget that uh, Putin said the, the breakup of the Soviet Union was the greatest political catastrophe of the century. That happened in 1991, of course, after Reagan, along with Pope John Paul II, uh, made a real effort, concerted effort, to diminish the Soviet Union, to defeat it uh, militarily, to to cut it off everywhere. And so you had uh, Reagan uh, coining the phrase in 1983, the evil empire. And you had the famous, uh, in 1987 at the Berlin Wall, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You had a real sense of, with Ronald Reagan, a clear distinction between 
the United States and its uh, the sense of uh, God-given rights and and a, a country built on uh, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness of the individual, and the godless, soulless communist state which put itself above all people. And Reagan was at great pains early on to try to make this distinction to the American public. Too many Americans, he believed, and I believe correctly, uh, felt that there was, you know, oh, can't we both just get along? Can't we all just, you know, each of us uh, cut back on our nuclear weapons? And this sort of equivalency, moral equivalency, he attacked it directly head on. And you're not seeing that now with Joe Biden. You, you don't see that. I mean, here is here is the Soviet Union in the in the under uh, Vladimir Putin, who wants to recreate it using the Soviet tactics of just crushing your neighbors because they don't agree with you, just wanting to put them under your yoke. Uh, and you have, meanwhile, the United States reluctant to sanction the energy companies, relax, uh, uh, refusing to sanction all of the banks. And I was just reading earlier that I didn't understand this until now. Russia is our go-between with Iran on this reconstituted nuclear deal that that uh, that uh, Biden is so eager to get back into. So we're we don't want to sanction Russia because they're our partner in negotiating with Iran. Who ever heard of such a thing? But that's the complications this, uh, that, that Biden and many on the far left have gotten us into by looking at the Soviet Union, I mean Russia, as just another country. But it's not just another country. It is still the evil empire, as we see in Ukraine. Michael, this is David Patterson. Uh, assuming they found you. Yes. Are they... <laughs> <laughs> Assuming that uh, Biden is not himself rooting for Russia, uh, the question is, politically, in a situation like that, as poll numbers have gone from 67 to 44, 70 percent of the people don't think inflation is being handled right. And probably and over 60 percent of the people don't think that the administration is handling this conflict right. Why do they keep going on and on like waste deep in the big money with the same plan that's not working? And now actually negotiating with your enemy to uh, create a deal with another enemy. It, it is mystifying, David. Uh, you, you, you just see so many examples of head-scratching conduct by the White House. And, you know, the, the State of the Union was a good example of that. I mean, if, if ever a president needed a reset, it was Joe Biden this week. But instead, he just went on and on with this programmatic list of things that nobody thought is going to happen for the most part and was actually falsifying information about inflation, uh, blaming it on com- companies gouging. And uh, I mean, he has no no honest bone, it seems, in his body if he's still sentient in, in these ways, because these are just falsehoods about the cause of inflation. And yet he keeps wanting to spend bucketfuls of public money for new programs that would only further up uh, the cost of inflation for most families. I mean, he could solve so much of the inflation related to energy with a speech. 
basically saying, let's not buy any more oil and gas uh, from uh, Russia. Michael. Let's produce it at home. But he didn't do it. I mean, it's it's inexplicable. Michael Goodwin, you know, I know I know a little bit about oil. And, uh-huh. and right now, <laughs> oil has hit $110 a barrel. And the prices at gas pump and uh, the prices at grocery stores, and you haven't seen anything yet. The month of March is going to be brutal. The inflation rate is going to be brutal. And I nobody understands why we're making... Uh, Putin rich. I mean, I think I guess they stopped buying it uh, lately, but we're making uh, the uh, Saudi Arabians and OPEC zillionaires. Is there any other word for that? Zillionaires, yeah. uh, along with uh, you know, uh, and there's no reason for it. Why can't we just uh, buy it from uh, from North America for from ourselves? Well, what was oh. What was really crazy, I'll bring to your attention, Michael Goodwin, again, we are talking to Michael Goodwin of the New York Post, is Pete Buttigieg was specifically asked, are you going to possibly ask Iran for more oil? And he said nothing is off the table. Then when he was asked about more drilling on federal lands, he was like, oh, no, 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 that's out of the question. That's off the table. So just think about that, right? The equation there that we're not going to we're not going to drill for oil in our own country that would give our give our citizens jobs and and give us more independence from people like Russia and Iran, but we'll buy it from them. I mean, is that because of the environment? But global warming is by definition global. It is not limited to what you do yourself. So you're not doing anything if you really believe this stuff about the, the greenness of, of energy. You're not doing anything for the climate by buying the oil somewhere else. Why don't you produce it at home at least if, you, if you're going to be uh, honest about we it? We have but, all the oil in the world. Yes. We have 100 years worth of oil. And uh, Lydia was there when I uh, – Got the call. Judge Weinberg was there. I got it from – I'm not going to mention names. I got it from a very, very senior Democratic uh, senator. And I, I said to him, if we were producing oil in North America or or, or, or getting it from North America, uh, the price of oil would drop from 110 down to 60. He in says, a heartbeat. And what is, I think he said, you're not wrong, John. So then why why won't they do this? I don't I just I can't wrap my brain around it. And then Jen Psaki, too, she was specifically asked. Well, what another Democratic uh, senator has said to me, yeah. a different one said to me, well, if we get the price of, of gasoline high enough, people will welcome electric cars. Jesus Christ. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a very interesting way to try to drive people Jesus to... Christ. I mean, you know, so enough gonna, is enough. They're going to torture us in the meantime, and but, we're going to yeah, buy the batteries from China? But, Michael, this is this is the problem. Oh, he did say today that, uh, oh, we're going to start making batteries here. And then I heard you say, you know where we get the batteries yeah, from. Yeah. Yeah, we're, and, and where then we what get did the he lithium say? from. And then what did he say, John? Uh, he says, no, no, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah, and you said I years said, from well, now. No, no, no. I did say not in this lifetime. Not in. I said to him, not in our lifetime. Yes, I heard you say it. Okay. Speaking of lifetimes, though, how much lifetime do we have left for an independent Ukraine, Michael? It's not looking good. I have to say that uh, Putin. I mean, that phone call that with Macron, uh, where Macron came away very pessimistic and said that, uh, and that was just today, I believe, yes. uh, that um, he thought the worst was yet to come. This is the Soviet way of war. 
which is, uh, you know, they, they don't really have any discipline in their army. They're not well trained, but they have these these what the Wall Street Journal calls these tubular weapons. They just stand off and fire endless barrages of missiles and uh, rockets to basically flatten c- civilian areas, create this huge stream of refugees, kill lots of civilians. It's, it's a form of terrorism. Uh, imagine just for a second if Israel did anything like this, how the world – I mean, Israel gives notice, and, and uh, when the Palestinians in Gaza are hiding in hospitals and things, Israel doesn't bomb them. But when it gets them out in the open, it does. And Israel is always attacked for, for even a, a single incident involving civilians. The Russians are doing it intentionally. They have done it before. They are doing it intentionally now. And the world is watching this time. That's the only time, only reason I think there is any hope here, that the world is seeing, you know, what Ronald Reagan knew, what Ronald Reagan clearly understood, and what generations of Americans clearly understood before the last 20 and 30 years where everybody has gone soft in the head on this stuff and, oh, globalization, globalization. Well, looks to me like we're retreating behind our borders in some ways. And I think that might be a good thing for America because this globalization thing is not working out. When China and Russia are making a pact together, this certainly doesn't smack like a happy future. This smacks like an awful past. But I think that's what that's what weakness gets America. And Joe Biden is a weak president. His policies are weak. Nobody respects him. Nobody fears him. And this is what I think you get as a result. And, and Michael Goodwin Bloomberg was reporting that according to several European intelligence officials that Putin is contemplating hanging Ukrainians in a public setting, in a public square, in order to dampen their spirits and to crush them. Because what people don't realize is that the Russians, they're not up against just a Ukrainian army, the Air Force, etc. They're also up against Ukrainian civilians. But that's according to Bloomberg. What, what was your reaction to hearing that? Well, it's it's horrifying, but again, it is very Soviet, and and that's who Vladimir Putin is. He's a KGB agent who, look, we know he has killed his political opponents. He's poisoned them, he's executed them, or had them executed. I mean, the unrepentant beast, and he's now doing it on a on a national scale, international scale, and look, I. I agree that we do not want to get into a shooting match in Ukraine with Russia. But at the same token, I think that we are all going to be horrified uh, to see that kind of thing. And there will be a lot of finger pointing at, at Joe Biden and other Western government leaders for not doing enough. I mean, already you've had Zelensky complaining about it. I mean, I would love to get the transcript of this Zelensky president call. We got the one from Trump and Zelensky that became a big deal and I think was was turned into something it wasn't by the Democrats in Congress. But let's hear Zelensky in his own voice telling Biden, you're not doing enough to help us, and then contrast that with what Biden said at the State of the Union. I think that I think we're all going to be ashamed of our government 
if this if this slaughterhouse continues and this is all caught on camera, this will all be seen around the world. It's going to be impossible for the United States and the European countries to avoid the sense that they are to blame for this, that they have let it happen, that they were too passive and too slow. That is going to be a black mark against us for a very long time. Michael Goodman, thank you for coming on. Thank you for telling the American people the truth. And uh, we'll catch up with you again real soon. Thank you all. Thank you. And when we come back, we're going to have Kathy Wild to talk about the homeless crisis, the crime. Is New York City going to ever open back up again? Because it's still a little empty. We'll be right back. A common sense recap of the day's biggest stories. It's John Katzimatidis and Cats at Night on 77 WABC. We're back. Uh, this is John Katzimatidis, and uh, we all love New York. And uh, I'm looking out on Third Avenue right now, and New York is the greatest city in the world. And and one of our biggest concerns, you know, we're, we're licking uh, uh, Omicron, and we're uh, – we still have a crime problem. Mm-hmm. Is New York City coming back? With us today is... We have Kathy Wilde. She's the head of the Partnership for Alliance in, here in New York City. And Kathy Wilde, uh, we just read a startling statistic that crime on the subway is up more than 200% compared to the same week last year. Well, it's not improving, that's for sure. Of course, fortunately, we also had a record of subway riders yesterday so we're we're moving a record since the pandemic tell us the numbers what percentage of the old uh, subways are we are riders riding now about 57 percent right now that's 55 is the old uh, number yeah so we're just uh we're just gradually getting getting back on the subways we expect that by the end of the month the end of march we'll see 50 percent of the office workers back in the office on the typical weekday so we're moving the right direction but as you started to ask the crime situation has become a huge issue and it's something that we just have to beg our leaders especially in the legislature kathy Kathy, we're not going to beg what we should do, what we should do, we should put our foot down. All New Yorkers should put a foot down. Common sense. Remember what happened in Buffalo. Uh, common sense Democrats, common sense Republicans working together and let, let the people that want that bail law fear the common sense New Yorkers. You even have the head of the MTA as well as our own Mayor Adams saying that this is getting out of hands and it's ridiculous. You, That guy, he's so emblematic and he is the personification of what's wrong with the bail law, what's wrong with these radical soft crime is that guy that attacked the woman with the feces, also a hate crime, 44 arrests, and he's out there and he's on social media. And here we have it again. He went right back to the same subway stop. And even it's just well, outrageous. You, but you said something very interesting before, Lydia. You said, and this guy is getting what benefits and he's living where? Exactly. He's living in a very nice hotel room because he put out a video on social media showing his like swank uh, digs, I guess. He's got nice clothes. He gets Social Security benefits. He's got food stamps and he's got a cell phone all paid for by taxpayers. Do you want to hear a little snippet of him on social media? Not really. This this has been going on. Let's not give him any more attention. You don't want to give him any more attention? We have to. Um, No, I think I think people get the message. I think the solution is more complicated. We had 
uh, Brooklyn District Attorney Eric Gonzalez this morning at our executive committee meeting, and he was describing how prosecutors' hands have absolutely been tied by another aspect of the law that, again, Mayor Adams is supporting a change, uh, the uh, discover what's called the discovery laws. The open are, file discovery, Kathy. Yeah, right. Which are the laws that uh, which which were changed at the same time as bail reform, and basically say that if a prosecutor leaves out a minuscule piece of irrelevant evidence, the defense attorney can come back and automatically have a case dismissed. It it is ridiculous and. Eric was saying, if we think bail reform has created a problem of recidivists getting away with murder, not literally murder in this case, but with a major felony, that wait till you see all the dismissals that are happening. And he gave us some examples because of, of, for totally irrelevant technical reasons. Kathy, it's even worse. It's even worse than that because they only have a few days to do their investigation, put the file together, and turn it over. So they're not prosecuting cases because they just don't have the the people power the to get power, this all the done. People power. Yep. If, no, he, he he described that, and it's something that you know. So so we can't just focus on bail because this issue is much larger. There have been a number of changes in the law that have been basically written by the legal defense attorneys. And it has hamstrung the police, the prosecutors. And the and, judges. And the judges. And the judges. All, all three. Kathy, and, it comes down to if we don't put the common sense New Yorkers, don't put their foot down before this November, we're in deep doo-doo. Well, I think we've got to act for, before that. And I don't think this is just a matter of, of going to the polls. This is a matter of citizen action right now, letting their legislators and city council okay. members know. Mm-hmm that we feel strongly on this subject and it, it's got to change. I'm, people are afraid to ride the subway. If people are afraid to ride the subway, how can we reopen New York City? How can we tell people to come back to the offices? They have no the other... The MTA was uh, advertising and they give out discounts. The people don't want discounts. They want they want to feel safe. Safe, exactly. And And you know, another thing that I think is real concerning is people have become so discouraged and feel like the cops are so demoralized they're not reporting a lot of crimes. So the data we get on what's going on is what are you know, the crimes that are reported or prosecuted or pressed. Only a but fraction. It's only a fraction of what's going because on. Because why should the cop go out and arrest somebody and he's got to turn them loose uh, three, four hours later? And uh, if he has to hold them or grab them or do something – uh, his pension is in jeopardy. Well, the qualified immunity. <laughs> yeah. Look what the city council did on qualified immunity. It it encourages cops to look the other way, to not take aggressive action. Go into Penn Station, go into Grand Central, go into the Port Authority. These are no man land. The cops are not confronting these people and communities are intimidated. I want to hear from Governor Patterson. Governor? Well, I think that the uh, people who can change this uh, I don't know that they should have to be called. If they don't read the newspapers and they don't watch television, they don't hear what their neighbors are saying, then it, re- it really will be an election before we start to see any change. You know what's really horrible is this is mostly affecting regular people, essential workers, frontline workers. Those are the people that have to take the subways, and this is not fair. 
And also because of the bail law, say if somebody does something to you, you don't want to report them because then that suspect can also get your information. Right. That's not, that's not, Kathy, that's another piece. Lydia's absolutely right. That's another piece of that legislation. They get the addresses of the complainants and the witnesses. And if, God forbid, somebody's burglarized or a woman is raped in her apartment, they can go back and do an on-site inspection of that apartment. And the, and the DA's office told me that if the case is dismissed because on a technicality, that they will um, – that they can't get an order of protection for the victim and wow. the witnesses. Oh, wow. Oh. Wow. Yeah, they have exactly. Done, they have done everything to but, but, create uh, Kathy, disaster. But, the, but the, um, the victim could get the order of protection themselves, right? But they won't have a, a police re- – well, they'll have reported, but they won't have a record, anything beyond that. The case will be dismissed. They'll, they'll so they a, won't have really cause. Well, if for an order of protection, you don't really need cause. Okay. You just need fear. But but well, what, what but the worst thing about it is that since the case is being dismissed and there is certainly a good chance that the defendant would have would have been found guilty, the order of protection should stay. Now, I don't know why they're eliminating it and then forcing the victim to go back and get the order of protection uh, herself or himself. That's what the D.A. said, that they said they cannot get it. If the case is dismissed, they can, the D.A. cannot get protection right. for its witnesses. Kathy, we look forward to maybe talking to you at least once a week and and, and making a judgment how much of New York is open again. Well, I think New Yorkers, as you know, are tough, and we are seeing real activity. I don't know if you've been out these evenings in the Restaurants city, are full. It is. It's hopping. So, so I'm enthusiastic about that. We will fight, and we will get our city back, Kathy. Absolutely. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Now, uh, when we come back, we're going to talk more about Ukraine. We're going to speak with the head of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, and we'll be right back. John Katz and the Tees. 77 Welcome back to the John Katz Matidis Cats at Night Show. We're going to continue our conversation about the crisis in Ukraine. On the line with us right now, we have Andrei Dobriansky. He is a representative of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America. How are you, sir? I'm uh, doing as well as you can under these uh, circumstances. Uh, Andrew, do you have uh, family back there, close friends? Are you getting phone calls? Uh, it's close friends. Actually, Ukrainian-Americans who I grew up with in New York uh, who decided to move to Ukraine uh, after independence, uh, married over there, have kids over there. And those are the ones who are having the tough decisions uh, because uh, one side of the family obviously feels uh, when they hear a warning from the United States, maybe leave the country. And the other side is I keep reminding my American friends, if a tank rolled up in my neighborhood, I don't know if I'd be leaving. Uh, maybe I tell them, go, you know, you know where. What what do you hear from them? Are, are there tanks moving? Are there shooting? What's going on? Uh, almost every place you are in Ukraine, you're hearing some kind of explosions, and that's incredible for a country that size. Uh, I like to remind people that when you drive from Montauk to Cleveland, you're still not driving as far as the entire country. So the fact that Russia has opened up multiple fronts coming uh, up from the south, Obviously, the East has been a problem, but the major thing now has been the fact that Belarus has joined the fight, sending their tanks and their army over the western part from the northern border 
uh, down towards those western uh, villages and small towns. Those are the areas that many people from the big city of Kiev, because much like New York City, uh, you know, not that many people are born there. They move there to the big city. And so they naturally have family in places they thought would be safer. And that's uh, how big is Belarus? A lot of people don't really know much about it. Belarus is uh, fairly big. It's not as big as, as Ukraine being the largest country in Europe. It's about half the land mass. Um, it, 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 has, uh, it doesn't have as many, but close to as many nuclear plants in it, which makes it another problematic area. That's something that everybody's worried about in Ukraine, the fact that an invasion is happening in a country that not only Chernobyl is being taken over the area, but active nuclear plants. That's a very scary thing right now. And that's the case in Belarus as well. Um, and is any help so coming from Europe? Uh, yes, help is coming from Europe. The Polish community has been fantastic in terms of organizing these refugee tents, uh, helping the United States processing people. In fact, uh, the, the local people there know the ground and terrain much more better, and they're ready to do it much more than anybody from out of town would be to help out. There's also humanitarian aid coming from everywhere. And I would also point out that any Ukrainians that were working throughout Europe as migrant labor, as tech people for you know, a short amount of time, almost everybody is flooding back into Ukraine to fight. And, and could you tell us what... Judge uh, Weinberg? Thank uh, you. Could you tell us uh, what the United States is doing and what they should be doing to help? Well, the United States actually just uh, sent over um, uh, 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 some more munitions. Um, so that's good. The fact that they figured out a way to keep keep it coming in. It's a problem right now. The fact that what the United States was doing since the beginning of the year, since actually a little before, is these almost daily flights of 90 tons of, of uh, military aid that uh, has stopped. And so the United States and other Western partners had to figure out another way of doing it. Uh, to get aid over into Ukraine, humanitarian and security, because all that stuff's going to run out. And that's mostly being done in small batches. What we'd love to see happen is larger convoys, just like Russia is having convoys uh, uh, of some kind of support. And then what people on the ground are begging for is some kind of air support. Um, and that's a very emotional issue for people. What about drones? To attack the convoy. Drones are the big thing. Yeah. Ukraine got an, uh, a very effective set of drones from Turkey earlier last year. Uh, those, I think, have been spent in terms of munitions. I think uh, what, what, what the uh, Ukrainians really would like is another round of those because they could really do some damage to those convoys that are so stuck on the main roads. That's why they're so long. Uh, they, uh, Russia was factoring in the ground to be cold and they could drive the tanks over, but it's all muddy. It's not as cold as it was, was going to be. So they're just stuck in one long line. Incredible. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Andrei Dubriansky, for giving us the information about what's going on in Ukraine and anything we can do here at WABC Radio. Please let us know. My my pleasure. Thank you so much for reaching out. Thank, thank you. you. Now on the line, and speaking of Ukraine and Poland, they have really stepped up to help uh, the estimated one million refugees. Uh, Polish Consul General Kubicki. Am I saying it right? Kubicki? Kubicki? Yes. How are you, That's sir? Okay. <laughs> how are you, General? Very good. How are you? So tell us about what Poland is doing. It's really incredible how you how you have stepped up during this crisis. Well, basically, we uh, open up uh, the, the borders from the very beginning of this conflict, um, letting everybody who wants to escape Ukraine, uh, regardless of the ethnicity, nationality, uh, to cross the border and, and find the, the, the peace and, and uh, place to stay uh, in Poland. We basically resi- we basically decided to to not use any extended procedures to let people in 
the admission is only upon any form of documentation, the, the, the document that proves the identity of the person, even a birth certificate. Uh, so, so really the minimum that uh, that is required to cross the border and and, and stay in Poland. We uh, already um, admitted over 600,000 people out of 1 million um, that flee uh, already from from Ukraine. So this is a pretty pretty big number. Uh, there's a lot of people in Poland on the Polish side uh, who are willing to help. Uh, obviously, institutions and geos, but also ordinary people that are offering transportation, uh, accommodation. They're opening up their apartments, their houses, uh, so these people can stay. Uh, how long are they going to need that help? We don't know, but we are uh, open to uh, to to get another number of people who who, who will come. In the coming days, the borders are remain, uh, remaining open uh, and we will continue to, to provide the help to all refugees that are willing to, to escape Ukraine. What do you hear about what's really going on in, uh, uh, in the Ukraine? Well, the situation is pretty dramatic. Uh, I spoke with the, with the Polish priest yesterday and he told me that pretty much Kiev has emptied uh, uh, with the exceptions, uh, with the exception of, of quite significant number of people who, who are still uh, willing to fight, in terms of those people who are willing to escape uh, from from the, the war zone, uh, there are still uh, trains, other means of transportation um, that are going to the Polish border from different parts of Ukraine. So this is still relatively; it is still going pretty. Pretty smoothly, um, uh, so people can get to the Polish border and as soon as as it's possible cross cross the border with Poland, also with with other countries. Um, we observe it very carefully. We have our people um, in Ukraine. Our embassy is one of a few that remained open, um, and it's still working in collaboration with Ukrainian authorities to help uh, both Ukrainians and also Polish people who are still. There in Ukraine. I understand between the, the Ukrainian government and the Russian government, they established uh, this afternoon, they established a, uh, a, a, what do you call What's it? What's a safe passageway? A safe passageway for, uh, for uh, refugees or civilians? Correct. We appreciate every sign um, or, or every gesture, every agreement that, that enables. Uh, first of all, humanitarian aid to reach out to people who, who need it. We know that there are thousands of people who uh, now suffer from from lack of basic supplies. And Poland is trying to provide these supplies to, to Ukrainians in Ukraine. Uh, so we are we are that's that's we, we take it with a, with appreciation that at least that this form of agreement has been reached, obviously. Uh, we need to see how that commitment is strong. We know that civilians are attacked by Russians, um, so we really keep our fingers crossed that this agreement uh, will be kept. Um, and obviously for people who want to escape, uh, this is also very important. People need to have uh, a choice whether they want to stay there uh, or um, to go to, 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 to the place uh, which is safe for, for the families. Well, thank you so much, Council General Kubicki. I keep saying it wrong. Kubicki? Am I say it? Tell me how to say it correctly. Well, Kubicki. Kubicki. I can say that better. Kubicki. Kubicki. My sister in law is Polish. She was born over there. So, and my favorite Pope, Pope, well, Pope John Paul II.
He was Polish. You know Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Council General. Thank and keep so us much. posted. You. Anything you guys need, just give us a call here at WABC Radio. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And when thank we... You. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with a Ty McCoy. He's a former assistant secretary of the Air Force, and he's got a lot to say about what's going on overseas. We'll be right back. You're commuting home with Cats at Night. Now, here's John Katsimatidis on 77 WABC. This is John Katsimatidis. It's uh, Cats at Night. And, uh, boy, so many things are happening in the world. And with us today is uh, Ty McCoy, the former assistant secretary of the Air Force, uh, how are you, Ty? Fine, John. How are you tonight? And how's all your team there? Well, you know, we're worried about the people in Ukraine. We're worried about uh, uh, how far is uh, Putin going to push. Uh, what What do you have to enlighten us? Well, one of the things that I was uh, thinking about when I read some material recently, which was uh, new to me, but yet it was old and something that reminded me of what I knew about the Russians, of, of how much of a multi-ethnic state they were. Uh, let's think about Ukraine as though we were thinking about California. If California wanted to break off and go their own separate way, which would be about an eighth or tenth of our GDP and a lot of people and a lot of land and a lot of minerals and a lot of uh, things like that, uh, we'd probably be upset. At least some people would be. And that's the reason the Russians uh, want to get Ukraine back. It was like California and part of the West Coast went away. And not only did uh, a lot of the land and space and air and minerals and agriculture uh, and strategic death go away when they lost to Ukraine, but it turns out that a lot of the officer corps and the non-commissioned officer corps of the so-called Russian army is, in fact, largely Ukrainian. And uh, they have many more uh, people in senior positions there uh, that are non-Russian, that are either Ukrainian, 53 percent potentially of the officer corps, and maybe a majority uh, of the uh, non-commissioned officer corps are non-Russian, which means they're either from the Caucasus uh, and Muslim uh, areas of of Russia, uh, or they are from other areas, but they are not uh, Russian. So the, the Russians want the everything back, but they particularly want the people back. They want the people that live in Ukraine who are very entrepreneurial, who staff their military, who border and have minerals and uh, have sea uh, access and so forth. So that is the reason the push for bringing them to heel and bringing them back into the uh, overlordship or actual integration into Russia is such a uh, imperative on the part of uh, uh, Vladimir Putin, I believe. Ty, this is David Patterson. What about the soldiers who obviously are connected with a lot of the people in the Ukraine? What about their level of interest in actually even fighting this war? Well, a lot of them are not very interested. Uh, About 20 percent of the people in the Ukrainian uh, military, uh, some uh, sources say, are actually Russian really Russian as opposed to Ukrainian. And many, as I said, of the officers uh, and enlisted in the Russian army are Ukrainian. And so it's a very uh, uh, difficult and complex picture. The Ukrainians who have uh, gone into the Russian military over the years and achieved rank and achieved privileges and achieved uh, access and success, they probably are not really very interested in fighting and killing their brothers in the Ukraine, 
although they probably, on the other hand, would like Ukraine in some ways to be uh, to be part of Russia, even though they realize Russia is is much more of an unfit country, much more of a troubled country uh, with a dictator than is Ukraine. So they're sort of uh, on the one hand and on the other hand, I think they they're really sort of, you know, not sure in many ways what to do. Uh, so where do we go from here? Well, I think that uh, the uh, the the recent uh, announcement of a ceasefire for letting humanitarian uh, corridors open up is is also a way for Putin, uh, who's feeling the pressure, I think, to act like he's a somewhat of uh, less than a war criminal, which which he is, and uh, to try and take the, the pressure off a little bit and see just how much success the West has in actually providing military aid and getting it into the Ukrainian army uh, and sort of uh, hedging his bets a little bit uh, so that if in the third meeting of the upcoming talks between the two states, if it looks like the Ukrainians are willing to give some on uh, being willing to be a a neutral power like Austria uh, and not a member of NATO and some other things like that, then Putin may feel that he has accomplished at least a, a short-term victory, and he'll try to wait and get some more later. Uh, so he wants to declare a victory on things like that uh, because he's wasted so much uh, money and lives and and uh, the like. So uh, it, there's a possibility something could happen, but then on the other hand, the Ukrainians have staked out an extremely aggressive posture uh, to be independent, to uh, choose their own course, uh, not to be under the hand, uh, even slightly, of the Russian president. And so it uh, – and they sacrificed a lot. Ty, whether, whether, yeah, gut, gut feeling. Do you think the the, the uh, generals that uh, work for Putin are, feel good about this? No, I don't think they do. Uh, generals uh, generally are – uh, happiest when they're uh, uh, having a parade and and uh, not risking their reputation in a battle, because if they won a battle, they do get some medals. But if they lose a battle, then they may lose their lives or they may lose their jobs. So I think the generals are not particularly uh, happy with it. On the other hand, each of the generals has a political uh, sort of person next to them watching them, and th- and those two have somebody from the KGB watching, watching the two of them. Right. Wow. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Assistant Secretary of the Air Force, Ty McCoy, and come back anytime. And thank you for your information. Thank you, Ty. Thank you very much, ladies and gents. Y'all have a great evening. You thank too. You. And right now we have New York City Councilwoman Ina Vernikow. She is on the line with us right now. She is of Ukrainian descent. How are you, Councilwoman? Hi, thank you for having me. Now, were you born there or you were born here? I was born in the former Soviet Union. Um, and when we immigrated to the United States with my family, it was already Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Do you still have family there? I don't have any family uh, in Ukraine, but I do have friends and classmates. And tell, can you tell us what's been going on there? What are they telling you? Uh, sure. So I come from a city called Chernovitz. Um Chernovitz is not being bombed right now. Although there have been sirens, uh, from what I know from uh, my friends and uh, my former neighbors and classmates, 
Um, there have been some sirens overnight. Uh, I know that my the town has become kind of like a refugee town. They've, from what I'm getting from them, they've received about 17,000 refugees. Wow, that is incredible. How do you feel about the actions the United States has taken thus far, specifically President Biden? Look, I think President Biden should have implemented sanctions a long time ago, and I've been saying this over and over. Um, I think that if that was done, this possibly could have been prevented. I think that he's been seen as a very weak leader by President Putin, and that's what encouraged and emboldened Putin to to start this war to begin with. Uh, I think had we had stronger leadership at the helm, we w- might have prevented this entire situation. Um, I think that President Biden is talking good talk, but uh, the situation on the ground is still very, very grim. And, uh, you know, he uh, I heard his State of the Union address the other night and, uh, you know, it, it sounded nice, but the situation is pretty bad. Um, obviously, the Ukrainian people are very, very strong and uh, they're fighting and I command them and I command the president, the Ukrainian president. Uh, but the situation on the ground is, is really, really bad. The people are really suffering. Um, they're running for shelter. They're dying. Uh, it's just an awful, awful state. Councilwoman, it's, uh, it's Judge Richard Weinberg. What would you would advise the administration to do to further the chances of success for the Ukrainian people at this point? Look, I think that's up to them to figure out. You know, it's up to the president, to the Pentagon, the people at the top. Um, you know, I think everything's possible. Everything that we can possibly do, we, we cannot allow what's happening to continue. You know, I think Putin is uh, trying to take over. I think he wants to recreate the Soviet Union. Um, I think he wants to destroy democracy. Ukraine is trying to uh, be a democracy. They've been doing very well. Uh, the people have been actually very happy living in the Ukraine. They've been prospering. They've had uh, economic opportunity. They've had freedom. Um, and uh, Putin doesn't like that. So uh, as America, a country who loves freedom, we, we need to stand by them and do everything that we can to help them. Isn't it incredible, Ina, when you come from a place where freedom is a scarcity or in, in jeopardy, how much you value it. And that's why you love America so much. And that's why you came, you decided to go into service and become a councilwoman yourself. Yeah. I mean, I had no uh, aspirations to, to run for office. I wanted to be an attorney. I, I ran my own practice for eight years, but when I saw what was happening here in this country, uh, you know, coming from my background, understanding what it's like to live under communism, even though I was a little girl when I was growing up there, um, I, I couldn't watch what was going on here. And that's that's exactly what we're uh, at war for. We want to protect democracy, want to make sure that we remain a free country and we want to help Ukraine remain a free country. Well, thank you so much, uh, City Councilwoman Ina Vernikow. And call us back anytime. Thank you, Councilwoman. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Well, guys, uh, we covered it. We covered it. I mean, <laughs> it, it doesn't, guys. It, it, the scary thing about it is, no, no matter how high up in the government, no matter who, they really don't know any details of what's going on. Well, well sorry, but there are lessons here. The it, first lesson is that in 1994, the Ukrainian government entered into an agreement with the United States and with Russia. And with China. And with China. If they gave up the nuclear weapons, their integrity, their sovereignty would be protected. In other words, 
David, don't, you know, don't, you can give up your gun. Don't worry. I'll protect you. Right. So Russia and China bail out. And I think what, uh, the judge is alluding to is that even if the Ukraine was not in NATO, where the United States was concerned, equitably they were because we guaranteed the same safety that the other NATO nations were. So I think this whole issue really rests on the fact that we did not keep our commitment to them. We opened the door, and the Russians have gone right through it and probably will and China conquer the country commit, in a few days. And China did not commit the uh, um, – why are we always left holding the bag of? Well, pills? I think I think China told the Ukraine, uh, tut, tut, yeah. sorry. You know? Yeah, but but you know what the problem is? It means that nobody who has nuclear weapons is going to be comfortable to give them up, and those people Never. who don't have nuclear weapons are going to try to get it. So you can have nuclear proliferation with, with the distinct advantage of hindsight, Your Honor. If the Ukraine had turned the deal down and had. Uh, nuclear weapons now or close to it, Russia wouldn't have gone near them. Exactly. They wouldn't right, have gone right. near them because once they got backed into the corner, they had nuclear weapons right now, they would fire them. And General Petraeus, what he said the other day here, right on your show, John, it just, it really, it really s- stuck with me that he said Putin is now kind of like a rat in the corner and we have to be really careful with how we tread and how it's easy to say, let's do this, let's do this. But he's got his finger very, very close to that yeah. button. But you know what that means, Lydia? I like what what the assistant secretary uh, uh, of the Air Force said before. He says you got the general, you have a political guy watching him, and then you got two uh, KGB guys watching both of them. Right, (laughs) right. One of them is Putin. Putin doesn't trust anybody. That's why you see him sitting across um, big empty tables. He doesn't trust anybody. He he doesn't even eat in public. That's why he always carries around a flask with water. He is the most paranoid person. He thinks everybody wants to murder him, and now we know why. Well, he's Rightfully so. These he days, he's sh- well, right. the fifty billion he put away in Switzerland. Switzerland says, "Well, we're holding it. We're not going to get turn it over." I know. Now you know where the other. You know where all the other money goes from uh, corrupt dictators and uh, politicians. No idea. Bitcoins. Yes. Uh, oh. I was. I had lunch with a, a banker friend of mine last week uh, that does business in South Africa. Uh, South America, and uh, one of the prime ministers of one of the major countries in in uh, South America. Guess what? Mm. Feeding the bitcoins. Well, it makes sense because it's not three traceable. billion worth. Mm. Three wow, billion. three billion. Yes, a lot and, of rubles. Uh, the, the only way the bitcoins is by by terrorists, by drug dealers, and corrupt politicians, and that's what's feeding the bitcoin. And when they have to buy an extra billion. That's when you see Bitcoins go up a little bit. Well, Governor Patterson, thank you. And, thank uh, you, John. Uh, Judge Richard Weinberg, thank you. Lydia, tomorrow is Friday. TGIF, thank God it's Friday. Yes. And uh, God bless uh, New York. God bless America. And uh, let's send a blessing over to the Ukraine, too, and Please. keep those people safe.